Jesus name we come to you Lord um, thank you for the day behind us the evening in front of us Lord we're with friends now and um, we want to celebrate you Lord we want to celebrate our salvation the fact Lord that uh, we have a relationship with you and God uh, amongst friends here we thank you for um, Ty and Catherine's wedding anniversary for Richard's birthday Lord and uh, just pray uh, for, for uh, blessings upon them and um, Linda and, and just everybody else that has uh, something uh, to celebrate, Lord. We pray that we're able to celebrate uh, more and more. And Lord, as we talk about here in this very place, just the fact that we're going to heaven one day, I pray that we would always be celebrating uh, what you've done for us. So God, uh, just help us to honor you through your word tonight and to navigate through the text in the way that you've intended and the way that uh, you would have us to grow. So uh, we submit this hour to you, Lord, uh, for your great name to receive glory in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we closed out two weeks ago with uh, having the death of King Solomon. And um, afterwards, uh, I don't remember if it was quite a few of you or if it was just my wife, but there was uh, some persistency in asking, um, does Solomon go to heaven or hell? And uh, I looked at all my Excel spreadsheets and realized, God, I don't keep track of that stuff. <laughs> God doesn't tell me uh, where everybody goes. So, um, but I did just some searching today and thinking, um, here's somebody that's clearly anointed of God, clearly called by God, uh, absolutely immaculately holy uh, dedication ceremony of the temple that he builds and all these things are just, uh, so amazing and then you just see him end so incredibly poorly so what does that mean well um, I'll tell you the passages that came to mind that I'm going to share with you may very well give you more questions and answers but we're going to do it anyway so <clears throat> uh, I'm going to start with this and I think these verses are very very important to grasp because one of the great complaints throughout the history of the church is the fact that, uh, as Gandhi once said, he said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. He says, your Christians look nothing like your Christ. Um, so what kind of testimony are we to the world? Now, I know DC Talk said this, but I don't know if they're quoting somebody else. They said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who honor Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That you actually reclaim this faith and your life will look like nothing like somebody who's following a faith. It's more like you're creating your own path, your own ways, which makes you creating your own God. Uh, everybody creates a God that they're comfortable with. The only question is, is it the true God or not that you're comfortable with? And so you get difficult passages um, in the Bible that if you just don't read past them just to get to the end of the chapter, you actually say, what did this just say? You're going to have to look in the mirror sometimes and, and evaluate because uh, this is not a country for sharpening your Christianity. This is uh, way too easy. I was just hearing from um, a pastor in Italy at our pastor's retreat this weekend. 
and he was just saying how uh, you know they all of Western Europe's gone so incredibly um, anti-God, and he was saying Jesus is showing up in so many people's dreams in Italy. It's like such a common confession now that they saw Jesus in a dream speaking to him, and it's like a, he says when we say revival in America, we have no idea what we're talking about because we've never seen one since like Jonathan Edwards' day. But he says in Italy, it's there's a revival happening. It is, it's it's like real deal stuff. So we have to question and say, you know, are churches authentic? Is my relationship with God authentic? Is yours authentic? And uh, we'll start with some scary ones and then get into some, uh, some ones that I think Solomon would fit into. But the Holy Inspired Word of God, Book of Hebrews, Chapter 6. Uh, if you think about Solomon's great start and terrible finish, um, Hebrews 6.4 would say this, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, you'd say Solomon's all that, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So you could certainly say, Solomon fits that category, but is that, is this the verse that speaks of, of him? <clears throat> I don't know. But if you're wondering about yourself, I would say this. Look at verse 7. I think, uh, I think verses uh, 7 and 8 really explain this, if you're wondering what it means. Um, impossible to renew to repentance. It'll say this. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end it is to be burned. So this is no different than the Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so nobody can boast. For your Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. In other words, Ephesians four through eight is saying the same thing. It's saying it in a different way though. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10 saying, here's how you're saved, grace through faith alone. Don't think it's your works because it's not. But God has for every saved person a set of works that he's prepared for them to walk in. Hebrews says those works are so connected to faith, they always come with faith, that if you fall away, you've been enlightened and you go to church and you know the word of God and you know these things and you fall away, you can't come to repentance again. And it says, Here, here's who, how you know who they are. Because just as the rain comes upon the earth, and it'll either yield herbs useful for people or thorns that are only good to be burned. It's saying you'll see the fruit of their life. They're going to be useful for God or they're not. And, that's, and if they're not, then the previous verses go for them. They've trampled the Son of God underfoot. There's, there's no sign of their... Their salvation. Um, you're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Okay? You're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. The rain falls on all of us, the wicked and the good, the Bible says, right? But when sometimes rain produces herbs useful for people, sometimes produces thorns and thistles. So the Bible says you're either an herb or a thorn. Okay? So uh, that's the evidence of true faith. The evidence of your true faith is you'll be the herb and not the thorn. Does that make sense? Okay. Does it seem like 
Uh, no, it's it. I mean, listen. People argue, can you lose your salvation or not all the time? And I think it's Hebrews ten. I'm not going to search for it now because I didn't plan on going there. But I think it's Hebrews ten that I remember writing somewhere in one of my Bibles. I don't think it's in this one. Uh, it basically saying, you want to know if you're saved or not? <laughs> Die and see where you go. Then you'll know. <laughs> you know, it, it's basically like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> but then you know. Um, yeah, I'm probably not going to find it just off the top, top of looking around. Um, I would like to find it, though. Um, anyways, too much time already. That would be a good thing to put out in the email. <laughs> no, we already told you the purpose of the emails, Richard. That's All pretty right. important. I'll put it on Facebook. Pretty okay. important. Yeah. All right. Okay, so you have that, and then if you go to 1 Corinthians, if we're thinking about Solomon again, here's something that says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in 24, you're going to hear uh, some language like Hebrews, only a little bit different. So, in thinking of Solomon, you can think this way, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Certainly not Solomon, correct? Now they who do it, they now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of all our fathers were under the cloud all passed through the sea all were baptized into moses and the cloud and in the sea all ate the same spiritual food all and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ but with most of them god was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness he's saying look at all the wilderness wanderers okay he calls them our fathers he says, but they weren't all pleasing to God. They were all baptized in the cloud. They all followed the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They all went through the Red Sea together, which he calls their baptism. They all drank the same spiritual food, the manna, drank the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock. They all did these very holy, convincing things, right? He says, but this, he says, but most of them died in the wilderness. Now these, th now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. So Solomon didn't follow that example, did he? He certainly became an idolater. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a verse that immediately follows Aaron making the golden calves and uh, them, them worshiping the golden calves while Moses was out up on the mountain. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these ha things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our, our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, 
will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, what did all that say? You're in a race, you're to run that race as the, to be the one who wins the crown, okay? So how do people actually win crowns, run races? It says they discipline themselves, right? They put themselves into hard subjection, checking themselves, okay? Does your spiritual life look disciplined? Are there spiritual disciplines in your spiritual life? Okay. Do you meet with God one-on-one -on -one every single day? It's a huge question. Because it's very difficult to say you have a good relationship with somebody when you don't see them all the time or hear from them all the time or talk to them all the time. So develop through the spiritual disciplines a good, strong spiritual life. Because there's a prize, and you're to go for that prize as the one who will win. And then he says, don't be fooled. Think of the millions that were going through the desert with Moses. He calls them our fathers. And he says, now imagine if you were following this cloud by day, this pillar by night. Imagine if you walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, saw your enemies drowned in the Red Sea. Imagine you had all these things. But he says, but so many of them died and perished and didn't make it to the promises. They had every, they had every, they had every advantage to having a great relationship with God, and yet they didn't have a great relationship with God. So, and he says that serves as an example for you. Take that as your example. Um, now, I am going to finish with something Solomon actually wrote. Okay, we're going to do the disco look, right? Disco look. Okay. All right. Hmm. Ecclesiastes. Now, this was actually written by Solomon. So let's see what Solomon says um, as he's uh, got all these wives and concubines and worshiping all these false gods, and he has the wisdom to do the research, and he has the finances to check out every single thing under the sun, right? So with all this wisdom, with all those riches, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He investigates all matters under the sun, and... He keeps saying over and over again, it's vanity of vanities. It's a chasing after the wind. In other words, it's meaningless, 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 says the preacher. He keeps writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. He keeps looking under the sun. He keeps seeing that death cancels out everything, that there's no meaning in life. Okay? He would be great support in debating the Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens of the world when we talk about you have no basis for meaning or purpose. You have to invent or create or imagine meaning or purpose as an atheist. It's just not there if you don't believe in God. And here Solomon's saying the same thing. He says, when I look under the sun, meaning not up towards heaven, everything is vanity, everything is meaningless. Now, what does he conclude? So there's 12 chapters to Ecclesiastes, 11.9 of them is under looking under the sun at the meaningless meaninglessness of everything and then he says in verse 13 chapter 12 let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter so he's saying here's the summary report of my search for meaning he says fear god and keep his commandments for this is man's all for god will bring every work in the judgment including every secret thing whether good or evil so where he's looking under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, and can't find any meaning or purpose, he finally looks up to God and says, the whole matter, he's not just talking about his life, this is an investigation of all of life, and his conclusion to, the, to existence itself 
because there's nothing more to do than to fear God, keep his commandments. That's man's all. That's all. It's everything. It's to fear God, keep his commandments. Why? God will bring every work into judgment. What was the theme of this whole book? Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Chasing after the wind. Now, how's he conclude? When you get your mind off the earth and onto God, now nothing's meaningless. Every single thing matters. Every thought, every work, every secret thing is judged, whether good or evil. So he literally undoes the other 11.9 chapters in this very last two verses, saying when you think of God, you realize everything counts. You have never had an idle thought in your entire life or an idle deed in your entire life. It was weighed as good or not good, everything. So he says, fear God. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. You can't have either of those without a proper fear of the Lord. I always compare it to doing long division. If you start the first step of a long division problem wrong, you can do every other step correctly, and what's your answer? Wrong. So if you don't start with the fear of the Lord, then you start believing in evolution. You start believing in in uh, taking pre-born babies' lives, and that's no big deal, it's just a day at the doctor. Okay, you start wrong, you finish wrong. As soon as you believe in God, then all of a sudden, now you're lined up. Now you can, um, you fear God, you keep his commandments, and now there's meaning and purpose in absolutely everything. So, I'm hoping, for Solomon's sake, this is how he ended, I hope this was a late writing of his, where he realized uh, man, I messed up a lot, and there's no meaning in all these wives and all this gold, and it's just nothing. It's it's vanity, and it's fearing God and keeping His commandments is is uh, where meaning and purpose comes. So, with that, we will certainly hope the best for Solomon, which uh, um, I believe uh, we'll see him in heaven. Okay, chapter twelve, First Kings. So we just had the death of Solomon. We had uh, Jeroboam rebel, and and now we're going to meet Rehoboam. And these names are obviously very close. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, one letter off. Uh, one of them is going to become the king of Israel, the northern tribes. One's going to become king of Judah, the southern tribes. So if you just remember, the first letter of their name is actually opposite of where they rule. So Jeroboam does not rule Judah, he actually rules Israel. Rehoboam rules Judah, okay? So Jeroboam is the northern king, Rehoboam the southern king, okay? All right. So, and Rehoboam went to Shechem. So which one is this? Southern king, right? Uh, so Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Now, they use the word Shechem twice in one verse, correct? That usually means there's something to it. So, <clears throat> looking at what's happened in Shechem, here's what we've seen. Joshua 24.1 is the first time Israel renewed covenant with God. Joshua 24.1. Joshua 24.32, Joseph's bones are laid to rest in Shechem. Okay, so we got two positive things going in Shechem there. Then you hit the book of Judges where you're hard-pressed to find anything positive going on. Um, in fact, when I was looking at these verses, 
I couldn't help but read other parts of Judges. Just absolutely insane. Judges 19 has got to be one of the most awful chapters in all of Scripture. It's, um, it's when um, there's uh, an attempted uh, rape. Uh, men show up at, at, a, at a door to rape, to rape uh, these guests. And the man hands over his daughter, or his concubine, who had been unfaithful to him. But he hands her over to spare everybody else in the house from these guys. Hands her over. She gets raped all night long. And in the morning, uh, he opens the door. She's lying on the threshold. He's like, all right, come on, let's go. And she can't get up, so he puts her on his donkey. And she dies, and he brings her home. Chops her up into 12 pieces sends a piece of her body to the 12 tribes to anger them and say, let's go get revenge uh, for what's happened here. And you look at that and you go, God, what's up with that? And you look at other things in Judges that are just absolutely awful. But what you have to remember is, intermixed in the text constantly is a, is a saying that the book of Judges ends with. In those days, Israel had no king. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So listen. We want to push God away. The book of Judges says, this is what your depravity is capable of. So that's not a book to say, what does God command and what does God want us to do? And you see all these awful sins. That's a book saying, these are people doing what they think is right. And you end up with all these awful stories. Yeah? It's literally, Judges is a celebration of relative truth. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's an awful, awful book of terrible, terrible stories in there. So, um, Shechem is, Abimelech is made Israel's first king, but a false king, at Shechem in Judges chapter 9. Then he has his head crushed by an upper millstone by a woman who pushes this upper millstone off a tower onto his head and cracks his skull to where he has his servant pierce him through with a sword to end his life in Judges 9. So we see that Shechem is a place of false kings. And now, how does, Re how does Rehoboam's uh, story start? He goes to Shechem, where Israel, uh, where uh, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it's not a, a promising start for Rehoboam just from the location that he's going to be at. So, um, and this is where we're going to see Israel pursue other gods. Uh, we're going to see, um, and, and so what I wrote in my Bible is this, as far as this chapter goes, like us, when Israel turns to other gods, it ceases to be Israel. When you turn to other gods, whether they be the gods of money, power, prestige, or yourself, you cease to be you. Israel is going to cease to be Israel. It's going to be torn in two in this chapter as they chase after other gods. Verse 2. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, say, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father, and his heavy yoke with which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me, and the people departed. 
Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So I said the word Shechem came up twice, right? So we check out what's happened there, right? What word came up twice right away in verse 7? Oh. Servant. Okay, they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. Listen, Rehoboam should have seen the wisdom in this. <clears throat> what's the deal he's being offered? Listen, be a servant to them when? Today, and they'll be your servants when? Is that not a good deal? Okay? And that shouldn't be easy to see the wisdom of that? Okay? <clears throat> if, listen, we have an opportunity to serve God in this lifetime, and then he will give us the forever as well, correct? And how many people don't want to do that? They don't see the wisdom in that. They serve God for one lifetime, and he'll give you a forever, just like here serve these people today and they will serve you forever and Rehoboam doesn't see the wisdom in that but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him who stood before him and he said to them what advice do you give how should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying lightly yoke with your which your father put on us then the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him saying thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it, it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than your father's waist. How many of you have finger in italics? <clears throat> that means it's not in the original, right? The word is actually thing, my little thing. And then when you have the reference to his waist, you know what he's talking about. So it's kind of vulgar here. And now, whereas my father has put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Listen, Jesus said the whole scripture speak of him. How is this speaking of him? What do you see in here that speaks of him some way? Scourges, he gets scourges. Now, I think the actual Hebrew word is, is scorpions. Uh, so I don't know how that'll fit in. Did you say scorpion? Jesus ever talked about his yoke? What's he say about his yoke? My yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? So is Rehoboam being a type of Christ or a type of anti-Christ? He's being a type of anti-Christ, right? He's doing the opposite. He's saying your yoke was fairly easy, but I'm going to make it very heavy. It's very much the opposite of Christ. Okay. Um, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying... Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now that promise was just in our last chapter, which was, of course, two weeks ago now, but the very last chapter, verse 29, you see that very 
promise. Um, verse 29 says, It happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way, and he had clothed himself in the new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Ahijah takes hold of the garment, divides it into 12 sections, saying, Thus the kingdom will be divided and distributed. Remember, you take 10 of those sections, you're going to have 10 of those tribes. So, so when... Um, so when this happens here in chapter 12, and they go out to, um, the, why, why does Rehoboam not listen to the people? Because the events are from the Lord. These events are from the Lord. Now, Rehoboam is 41 years old in the story. If you look at uh, chapter 14, verse 21, you'll say Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. That's pretty young for a king, correct? Okay, so he's 41 years old. And it, it, it says the kids he grew up with, so they'd be, you know, his age, they're the ones he's taking advice from, correct? And what did it call the ones that he didn't take advice from? Elders, right? Okay, because we are definitely in the uh, anti-older uh, person, pro-younger person movement here uh, today where... Um, instead of being respected for the years they have under you, you're, it's kind of held against you, right? So um, here's where I would point them. Um, and what, what does the Apostle Paul say about this? Um, he'll say, when I was a child, I acted like a child, I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And what chapter is that in? First Corinthians 13, which is known as what chapter? The love chapter. Okay, so Paul's literally saying, until you learn to love like this, you can never be a man. And I just get a woman saying hallelujah there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> never fails, I think. <laughs> so um, now, here's Rehoboam and his buddies not putting aside childish things. Okay? And um, so therefore they're not... Uh, you're going to see his, his, his reign as king is not that of a man, it's that of a boy. All right. Um, 16. Now when all, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, here comes the great division of the two kingdoms now. Here's where the one nation Israel divides into two, because here's what the people of the southern kingdom say, when they hear that, that uh, Rehoboam is going to make their yoke very, very heavy, it says, what share have we in David? Imagine that, for great King David. Now they're saying, we have no share with David. We're going to break from this king. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. There's the big separation. So... Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Now, we have this great division in Israel. And um, when I was uh, reading this, this this afternoon, I was thinking, for whatever reason, of a quote from Martin Luther. Because you're thinking, you know, especially when you realize... Uh, what I just read before from Corinthians where it said, here's people that were in the wilderness, they're eating of the manna, they're drinking of the water from the rock, they're crossing the Red Sea miraculously, they're, 
there are all these things that you're like, how do you not believe? How do you disobey? You know, you're on wonder from the last miracle to the next miracle, yet so many of them fail. And you hear then Jesus say in the parable of Lazarus and uh, the rich man, uh, even if one were to raise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe if what? It says if one condition is not met, then they won't believe even if somebody raises from the dead. What is it? Yeah, it says if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe their Bible, then they won't believe even if they see a miracle. That's the power of your Bible. It's saying if you don't believe this, you could actually see somebody rise from the dead and you won't believe in God. Okay, because God has ordained this to be his communication to you. Okay, now, um, but Martin Luther would say this. He would say people fail to see the evidence of God when God for them, for them becomes in the category of the useful rather than the enjoyable. In other words, if you're using God just so you can be in heaven and avoid hell one day, he's just useful to you. You're using him. Okay? And he says you can fall into all kinds of idolatry if that's how you see God. But if you see God as the enjoyable, you just enjoy a relationship with him. You're just enjoying him day by day. Then you're having an authentic relationship with him. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the very first question they deal with, is talks about the purpose and the meaning of life. It says, what are the two aims of life? What is your purpose? What is your meaning? It says, it's to glorify God. Okay, there's one. So you should be thinking of your day to day. And the second one is to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him. And Martin Luther says, you got to get God out of the category of the useful and get him into the category of the enjoyable. It's not a relationship if you're just using him. He can get you to where you want to be, so you use him for those purposes. The authentic relationship is when he becomes the enjoyable, that you enjoy him. And then when you realize Jesus actually says, listen, if you're ashamed of me in front of man on earth, I'll be ashamed of you in front of the angels in heaven. Why? He's saying because you're to be enjoying me. When you enjoy me, there's no shame in that. You just enjoy me, and I flow easily out of your mouth. I'm easily in your conversations. Okay, you, you easily point people to me. It's what you enjoy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> 18. Then, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. So Rehoboam sends out somebody to try to appeal to those who are going with Jeroboam to the northern kingdom, separate from Judah, and you'll see it's Benjamin as well, <clears throat> separate from them, and he sends Adoram as like this delegation of peace, and he gets stoned to death, okay? Um, Jesus compares himself to that in the New Testament. He'll say that my father's the uh, vineyard owner who sends, finally, after servants are killed and all that, he finally sends his son and he's killed. Adoram kind of takes that position here. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot, chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been a rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel. 
that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. Do you remember what I said about Shechem? In the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. <clears throat> so now when Jeroboam gets to his northern kingdom, he gets up to Shechem, he's realizing that the um, temple of Solomon that Solomon built is down there in Jerusalem, and when the feasts come, my northern people here, my ten tribes, are going to go down there to worship at the temple, and then they're going to want to stay there, and they're going to become part of Rehoboam's kingdom. And then if they become part of Rehoboam's kingdom, what are they going to do to the old king? What they always do, they're going to go back and kill him, right? So now he's, he's, he's got this fear in him about that. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, does that sound familiar at all? Who's that? Who's he being? Aaron, right? Okay. He says, is it too much for you to go up? He says, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Where do you think he got that line from? Aaron himself, right? But Aaron said when Moses wasn't coming down from the mountain on time. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And I, Diane, I think you discovered we were very close to that, right? Well, we were in Dan, in Israel, very close to the site. And he set up one in Bethel and the other put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before, before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. See, Rehoboam uses, I mean, sorry, Jeroboam uses Aaron's words here. So Jeroboam's going from a Moses-like deliverer. He's the one that delivered him from Rehoboam, right? He's going to add to your yoke. I'm going to free you from this heavy yoke that looked like the Egyptian yoke on the Israel slaves, right? Very similar. So Jeroboam, therefore, becomes a Moses-like deliverer from that, from that. But what does he immediately do? He goes from Moses-like deliverer to Aaron-like idol worshiper, right? Immediately, okay? So the question is, how do you have these great moments and immediately turn into sin so quickly we're going to talk about that in a second 32 jeroboam ordained a feast is that where i am 32 yes. jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in judah and offered sacrifices on the altar so he did at bethel sacrificing to the calves that he had made <laughs> and at bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made so he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, and the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. Now, how does he go from the one that a prophet told him, hey, you're going to receive 10 of the 12 tribes, 
you're going to be set up as king. Um, he even acts like David after that because he's very patient. He sees Rehoboam become king. He goes to Egypt. He waits it out, just like David always waited for Saul to finish being king. Wouldn't let any harm come to Saul. Even when David had an opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, he wouldn't. He says that's God's anointed, right? And he just waited patiently for himself to be king. So Jeroboam starts like that, waiting for Rehoboam to be king and have his time or whatever and wait patiently for God to install him. But as soon as it happens, and then Rehoboam wants to send 180,000 men to kill Jeroboam. And, and God sends a prophet says, don't. This is from me. Just let him go. Let him be king. So he has all of that going for him. What's he immediately do? He says, I'm in a circumstance right now. I'm in a circumstance where my my people of my kingdom are going to have reason to go down to Jerusalem to worship, and I'm afraid they'll never come back. And if they stay there and, because of Solomon's temple and, and the feasts, and now they're going to have Rehoboam be their king, then they're going to come back and kill me. But twice we heard the text say this was from the Lord, that Jeroboam was set up as king, correct? This is of the Lord. His kingship's of the Lord. His protection from Rehoboam's of the Lord. And the story is centered around two golden calves set up for idol worship. Okay, so it's not recognizing in your circumstance that God is in your circumstance. God is in your circumstance. So, where I always, the, this Luke chapter 7 is where I'm going to finish tonight. This, when I realized what Luke chapter 7 was saying, I remember reading Luke 7. Because this is where we're going to get the, hey, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance, we mourned for you, you didn't weep. I didn't know what this was saying. It's, it's talking about John the Baptist being called the demoniac and Jesus being called a drunk and a glutton. Like, what? What is going on here? And then one day, just like the blinders came off, I saw it so clearly and it became something I never stopped talking about. Because how many times, I mean, to me, with, you know, teaching high schoolers, college to me is that place where kids are put in a circumstance where they don't understand God, and so no matter how much they trusted him before, they just stop trusting him and they walk away. Okay, every single research um, poll I've ever seen says two out of three Christian school graduates walk from the faith of college. Those are palaces of atheism, tolerance, um, all these things. Of course, lust and drugs and everything else. Okay, and. Um, and you go, why is it that the God of, I mean, are there bad circumstances in this book? So what gets surprising when Christians get in bad circumstances? Why are they so surprised? Why do they go, God must not listen to prayer or be real or whatever they say about God? Why are they so surprised if they're reading this? Okay, I tell the kids, the day I shut this and walk from the faith is the day I turn on the news and they go, nothing bad happened today anywhere in the world. Today was a really good day. Then I won't understand this. And to me, this is totally wrong. But as long as there's murder and rape and all that stuff, then I go, hey, Bible's right. We're evil. Evil's in the world. Um, now it makes sense to me. So let me share with you, some of you for the second, third, or fourth time, some of you for the first time. Your circumstances do not determine who God is. Because remember, your circumstances are your circumstances. They're not mine. So... If I'm trying to follow God and I'm having a good day with God and your circumstances are bad and you go, he just doesn't exist, you just damn me to hell. Or you just damn me to rotten in the ground for all eternity with no heaven. Because you just made God disappear. 
right? God is not waiting for you to have a good day to be real for everybody else. He's real, period, even when his son is dying on a cross. He's very, very real. Your circumstances do not determine the existence of God. Your circumstances do not determine the goodness of God. He is good all the time, no matter what you're personally going through. So Jesus will call John the Baptist the greatest man to walk the earth. And watch what happens to John the Baptist in Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John the Baptist reported to him concerning all these things. It's talking about miracles that Jesus has done. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Listen, this is the guy who is six months older than Jesus and they are cousins. This is a guy whose mother is great friends with Jesus' mother. Okay, This is a guy who God picked to be the only prophet that actually had prophecy about him. There's prophecy in Isaiah, prophesying about John the Baptist. He's a prophet with prophecy about him. He's the only one. This is a guy who God said, I am going to let you know who the Savior of the world is. You'll see the one who the Holy Spirit descends upon in the form of a dove. That'll be him. And John gets to see that and announce him. Now, John does something righteous and he tells a king, you have an unlawful marriage. And he gets thrown in prison for that. And as he's in prison, he keeps hearing all these reports about Jesus working miracles. And he doesn't say, that's awesome, that's great. Because remember, the same guy says, I must decrease, he must increase. Mm -hmm. So now he's in prison decreasing and Jesus is increasing, but he's confused over the circumstances and it makes him say this, go ask Jesus if he's the one or should we look for somebody else? What does the Bible tell you is going on the whole time this is happening? The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. Do you think they have any questions if he's the one or not? Can one person's circumstances change the existence of God for everybody else? No. Do the best of people get into these crummy circumstances? Jesus says John's the greatest of all of us. And he's in jail for not for doing something wrong, for doing something right. He's in jail. But it's causing him confusion and it causes him to question the very identity of his cousin, Jesus Christ. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions and evil spirits and to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. The very first article I ever wrote for Calvary Christian Academy was titled, tell him what you've seen and heard. All of you have seen and heard of the things of God. And what does God want you to do with that? That's why I shared about Ty's heart. Why? Because most people in his situation wouldn't have made it to the doctor in time. So tell them what you've seen and heard. Okay? Olivia Durr I've told you about. Tell them what you've seen and heard. Okay? Um, why? It's a testimony. What if the Samaritan woman never went and told people what she's seen and heard with Jesus? Whole, whole village would never have been saved. Tell them what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Listen, if you're a first century Jew and you just heard Jesus say that, you're going to go, that sounds very, very familiar to me. Because in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is trying to get out of being the one sent to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, Moses' last ditch attempt to get out of it is to say, I don't speak well. And God's answer to that is, 
Who made man's mouth? Who makes man mute or speaking, deaf or hearing, blind or seeing, lame or walking? Is it not I, the Lord, who does these things? Here's what Jesus says. Go tell John what you heard and saw. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. What's he saying? You want to know if I'm the coming one or not? Go tell him the God of the Exodus is here. Go tell him the God who spoke to Moses is here. Okay? It's exactly what he's telling him right now. And then he says this. You ready for this one? Tell John this. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Do we want to complain when our day doesn't go the way we want it to go? But God might be working something else out with your time in prison, with your crummy boss, with your whatever the case may be. Okay, blessed to see who's not offended because of me. Why was Joseph in jail for two years after the cupbearer got out? And he told the cupbearer, go, hey, remind, remember me when you get out. And then Joseph sits there for two more years. Why? Because a man who trusts cupbearers is not the man who's going to be able to be the Joseph that we know today. He's got to sit in jail until he trusts God only. Okay, so sometimes, is, can God put you in jail to get you to be the person he wanted you to be? Yeah, should you thank him for it? Yeah, you should. Okay. When the messengers of John departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. So Jesus looks at the multitude, says this about John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, why does he say that? He's saying, listen, John has done everything God has asked him to do. He can't be greater than John. He's the greatest. But everybody in heaven is greater than he is. So I'm not going to get him out of prison. But he's going to get beheaded. And I'm going to let him go and be greater. You ever see heaven that way? You ever consider death that way? God just let me be greater. It's all Jesus says. He's the greatest here on the earth. And everybody in heaven is greater than him. So I'm going to let him get glorified. I'm going to let him be one of the greats in heaven. Okay? Or should we look for somebody else? If you don't like that scenario, do you look for somebody else? Okay? Because Peter in Matthew 16 will say this, Where are we to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So anybody that departs from Jesus, that's my same question. Where are you going to go? You ain't going nowhere that has eternal life. Okay? When all the people heard of even the tax collectors justified God. Now this is the part that just opened my eyes. Because who could ever understand this? Verse 29. When all the people heard of even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That day I just sat there going, what is it about the baptism of John that allows tax collectors who get baptized by John to go, I understand what just happened here. And the Pharisees who never got baptized by John going, I don't have any idea what just happened here. 
What is it about the baptism of John? What did John say his baptism was? Repentance. Baptism of repentance. Guess who's repentant? Tax collectors. Guess who's not? Pharisees. So what are you missing when you're not repentant of your sin? What is God trying to show you that you're just, you don't know right now because you haven't repented of a sin? You have no idea what you're supposed to know. And you have no idea about how God's operating in your life right now because he's doing something in your life that you're you totally are missing because you're holding on to a sin. You'd rather do the sin again tomorrow than confess it tonight. That's idol worship. That's idolatry. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said he is a demon. The Son of Man's come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all of her children. So, you say, what is this generation like? It's no different today. He's saying, we played the flute for you. That's happy music, right? That's Jesus, the flute player. The Bible says he came full of grace and truth, correct? And then he says, what, what happens to people when they hear the happy music of grace and truth? They'll say, wine bibber, glutton, friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who he is. And then he sends John the Baptist to be the, the one that mourns for them. Some of your Bibles say he played a dirge for them. The dirge is like funeral music. Because John the Baptist, the one who came, says, repent. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and everybody not repentant is going to be thrown into the fire. He says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Brood of vipers. Is this, he's calling them the Genesis 3 seed of the serpent. Because you're the seed of the serpent that opposes the seed of the woman who's now here, Jesus Christ. So he says, we, we played that flute for you about repenting, or we played that dirge for you about repenting, and you didn't weep. Tell you good news and you don't dance, tell you bad news, you don't weep. That's what this generation's like, he's saying. But wisdom is justified by all of her children. And then what does that mean? Well, I would always stay in contact and say, look what happens next. And um, Jesus eats at some Pharisee's house, and there's a woman there who they said, if you only knew who that woman was, you would not let her touch you. And he's allowing her to pour oil all over his feet, saying, as many times as I tell you guys that I'm, I'm going to be killed and on third day rise again, and you always say, no, we're not going to let it happen. This woman's already preparing me for my burial. She gets it. She loves me much because she was forgiven much. But your lack of repentance is not allowing you to be forgiven much. And therefore, you lack in love. Your hearts are cold. Okay. So, how did all this start? John the Baptist is in prison, and he has no idea that the plan for his life is to die. Can you imagine that? Jesus' plan for his life was for him to die. Why? Because that's how much Jesus loved him. Not hate him. Not mad at him. Simply said, I know what happens when you die, and I won't, I won't keep you from that glory any longer. So he lets him die. Could Jesus have gotten him out? Absolutely. But he doesn't lift a finger to do so. Why? Among men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he is. 
Son Jesus let to be greater. Amen. Amen. So, what are your circumstances? What do you say about God in those circumstances? You have, when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, it was men, it was people scourging the pages of Scripture for all the questions that that Westminster Confession asked. And they go through the 66 books to see what is the universal agreement of Scripture about these answers. And they, when they asked the utmost question of why do you have breath in your lungs? Why, do, why does God bother allowing you to have life today? It says so you can glorify him and enjoy him. Glorify him and enjoy him. If God is just useful to you, if he's just a get out of hell free card, then you're an idol worshiper. If you're enjoying him, you have a relationship with him, you love calling him father, you love that he calls you friend, and he is quick and easy off the tip of your tongue because of who he is to you and you're enjoying him, that's the authentic relationship that we're looking for, that he's looking for. Amen? Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for who you are. And God, uh, just thank you for loving us. So we pray that you would increase our capacity, Lord, to love you back more and more all the time. We know, Lord, that every bit of love we have for you is only because you first loved us and you opened our hearts to the possibilities of knowing you and, and having fellowship with you. Lord, enjoying your voice through your word and enjoying talking to you through prayer like we are right now. So God, help us to be faithful. Increase our faith. Help us do all that we're supposed to do. And in the end, just say we are only unworthy servants who have done what we're supposed to do. That you might receive all of the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.